During the winter months in cities across North America, thousands of crows gather into overnight roosts. Night after night, waves of these black birds fill the sky at dusk, streaming in from all directions. And you can't help but wonder why. My name is Craig Gibson, and I'm an avid bird photographer, writer, and conservationist with a passion for educating adults and children about the marvels and mysteries of God's winged creatures. Welcome to The Crow Patrol, a podcast exploring the amazing phenomenon of winter crow roosts and the lives of these incredibly smart, social, and family-centered birds. Welcome back to another episode of the Crow Patrol podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. And today we are delighted to welcome my friend, John McCone, who currently serves as a policy and education specialist at the Merrimack River Watershed Council. John and I have had a, an opportunity to know each other these last number of years. Um, John joined the council back in late uh, November, uh, uh, late 2017. Prior to that, he spent about 25 years working as a journalist, uh, most recently as editor of the Daily News of Newburyport, and he's had a long-standing, a lifelong interest in, in the ecology of local rivers and coastlines. Notably, in 2009, John won a national award from the Inland Press Association for an informative uh, eight-part series on erosion issues facing Plum Island and Salisbury Beach. He also has worked as a park ranger for the National Park Service and the state of Maine. And many of you may not know this, he's also authored three books on Greater Newburyport's history. John has a Bachelor of Arts degree in American history from Union College, and he also stays close to the ground in life and remains well-grounded by running a small organic farm in Amesbury and takes great joy in getting out boating and fishing, particularly along the Merrimack River. John, welcome, and uh, I invite you to share anything else that you might uh, like to add to that uh, overview of your background. Wow, that, <laughs> that is a terrific entry. Thank you so much, Craig. Really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I guess you, you kind of nailed it. I mean, I, I'm very interested in the river. You know, I live close to the river. I can see the opposite bank of it from my house. I can't actually see the river. But, you know, as, as long as I've lived here, I've, I've been engaged with it. You know, you drive down the street from where I live and it's, you're right on the Merrimack River. And it's just so beautiful down there. So that's always been of interest to me. And the ability to, to work to make it a cleaner river has been really a, a dream come true. What has been the real inspiration uh, behind that, John, for you? So there's a few things. During the summertime, I'm on the river probably every week or every other week, boating on it and fishing on it. So I, I know it pretty well, at least in the lower regions of it. You know, I've seen changes that have happened. And, uh, you know, there's one particular change perhaps we'll talk about, which is uh, combined sewage overflows and the impact of them. And uh, so I, I felt I wanted to do something to help to bring attention to, to some of the issues and, and bring some positive change. 
Mm -hmm. As you look back on the years as a journalist, in addition to that uh, award-winning series on erosion issues, had you written a lot previously about nature, natural history, ecology, those topics from time to time, or did that kind of grow in later years? Yeah, I think probably when I started working in um, Newburyport, that's when it, I really started to foster that interest because this this area of the Merrimack Valley has a lot of open space. Uh, you know, it's right on the coast. We have the Great Salt Marsh, a lot of interesting natural habitat. And oftentimes those were news stories, particularly Plum Island. You know, ironically, I got the award from the Inland Press Association, even though it's about the coastline. So I, I don't know how that works. But yeah, it, you know, it's fascinating when you see how things are changing. You know, a lot of people, I think, who are out traveling through the, the uh, particularly out through the uh, salt marshes, you see how much the sea is rising now and you start to see the damage that's happening to homes. Um, so, you know, all the stuff is very real. It's right in front of you. It's news for one thing. Uh, and it's, it's our environment. You know, this is the world we're living in. It's changing. Amen to that. Who had the biggest impact on you in developing an interest in, in, you know, nature, ecology overall, mom, dad, aunt, uncle, friend, neighbor, uh, anybody come to mind? Yeah, I would say my parents did. You know, we uh, we lived in a rural setting when I was a kid, and um, we also lived on the coast of Maine. And uh, you know, we used to go out hiking and boating, and I, I developed a real appreciation for the environment. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, boating and fishing. What's your favorite type of fishing to do? <laughs> well, I like to boat. Uh, outside the Merrimack and I'll go out the Merrimack and out into the ocean. And it's, it's sort of like a whole other world out there. You know, it's really a wild world. And um, I like to fish for bluefish and stripers and you encounter all kinds of things just beyond the Merrimack or even in it, you know, sturgeon for one thing, that's a new phenomenon. Yeah, whales, sharks, you name it. There's all sunfish, all kinds of really interesting fish that you see that are they're right here you know as soon as you get into their environment all of a sudden you realize oh this is not the land you know i'm suddenly in this place where i'm sort of the invader so it's <laughs> it's fascinating i think wow so john tell us um after this long stretch in the the journalism world what were the initial steps of of looking at making a shift to to join an organization like the Watershed Council. What what were the what were the first steps in taking a look before you accepted? What were the first steps uh, uh, that led you in the path of of uh, giving serious consideration to leaving what you had been doing, bringing those skill sets, and going to work for a different uh, an organization with a very different kind of mission? So I decided to leave journalism well before I came to the uh, Watershed Council. I don't think it's any surprise anyway. Journalism is a really tough business, especially today. And uh, with social media and so, some of the changes that have happened. And I figured it was time to get out and to try something new. Um, and so I, I really, uh, I didn't have the skill sets that maybe would have matched up naturally for some of the jobs I was looking for. But with the Merrimack River Watershed Council, there was this kind of a uh, 
uh, it's a synergy that happened because I, I knew a lot about the river and they were looking for somebody who could increase their public profile, you know, who knew something about news coverage and how to attract coverage. And I did have that skill set. So, uh, and then there was this, this news thing that was happening, which was uh, CSOs, combined sewage overflows. And so immediately started to focus on that. Gotcha. Okay, good. And then did you hit the ground running, focusing on that as a, as a you know, priority issue to address? Yeah, I did. And it was mostly because there was uh, a lot of events that were happening that were drawing significant public attention. You know, the, right around the time I came in, a sewage plant in Lawrence had a power outage for many hours, and there were millions and millions of gallons of untreated sewage that went into the Merrimack. I think a lot of, yeah, I think a lot of people, including myself, weren't really aware this was happening. You know, it, it, this has been going on for decades now that right. sewage plants release untreated sewage into the river at certain times. You know, I think we all thought that this had ended long ago, but it hasn't. Wow. So, so what? Where does that stand now, John? Yeah, so there's been so much public attention on this now, and the public has reacted in a, a way that I think we'd all expect, which is, I can't believe this is happening. What are we going to do to correct this? So there's been a lot of pressure, and there's been a lot of attention focused on this. And right now, we've got a lot of federal money that's been allocated to states through the infrastructure bill, another bill called the ARPA bill to take care of long-term problems, you know, across the board. And so CSOs are clearly one of those issues. It's very expensive to fix these problems. It's millions, you know, billions actually. And so a a community can't fix it on its own. It needs money from uh, the federal government. So that's what's happening now. So this is suddenly there is a a bonanza of money available to fix it. So we feel really good about that. that. Maybe we can finally get this, into our past and, and move forward. I imagine, John, a lot of um, collaborating uh, with a range of different type of uh, partnership groups, agencies. Absolutely. Yeah, there are a lot of different groups that are interested in this. Federal, state, you know, local, a lot of nonprofit groups, you know, fishermen, you know, all sorts of people. It's interesting, all the groups that are coming together to support this. Well, it's a beautiful river, and I, my guess would uh, be that you'd, you'd give it a much higher overall rating now than when you first landed at the, at the watershed council. <laughs> yeah, I would. You know, when you look back 50 years ago, it was absolutely filthy in particular. I mean, they were just dumping sewage into it, raw mm-hmm. sewage all the time. Uh, so now it's a lot of it is treated, and so it is much cleaner. You know, there's still some issues that we're dealing with, you know, new issues that are coming onto the you know, spotlight across the country, uh, we're just kind of learning about. And uh, that's the next challenge, you know, kind of a next generation challenge. Exactly. So, John, a brief overview. How would you go about describing the, the current mission of the Watershed Council? What would you say is kind of the, 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 the current mission and kind of top priorities, top objectives? Sure. Okay. Great question. So, our mission is pretty much the same that it's always been, which is to make the river cleaner and healthier for the next generation and to deal with whatever the problems are on our plate at that time and fix them. 
because there's always going to be something new that develops. And now one of the big problems is climate change and what the impacts of that are. So the sorts of things that we're doing are, uh, you know, we're trying to prevent pollution from getting into the river and you know, working with local communities on that. And this is stuff, really mundane stuff like stormwater and maybe there's sewage leakage. Another issue now is something called PFAS, which is uh, called Forever Chemicals. They are they're in almost everything you can imagine. Anything that's water repellent has these chemicals. They're man-made and um, they're all over our environment. PFAS are starting to get into the Merrimack as well. So this is another problem we've got to look at, try to figure out. And then another big initiative we're doing right now in New Hampshire is uh, the Merrimack, about a little less than 10 years ago, was declared one of the most uh, endangered rivers in the United States because of the potential for development within the watershed. And that development can lead to areas where there's a lot of pollution that will run off, say, parking lots and whatnot, go right into the river. And so we're working in New Hampshire right now to try to protect as much land around the river and its tributaries as possible. Because land that's undeveloped near a, a water source is really one of your best protective buffers to prevent uh, any sort of contaminants from getting in. Wow. Uh, that's a lot of ground to cover. Um, how many, how many, uh, the, the council, roughly how many members, it, it, it's basically a membership-based organization? Yeah, pretty much. Most of the people who are members are, they live within the Merrimack River Valley. Yeah. Uh, so John, tell us, what, what's the size of the mem- membership currently of the, uh, of the Watershed Council? People who pay dues, they would be five, 600 people. People who get our emails, sign up for information, uh, runs probably closer to 10 times that amount. Wow. And is that normal for an organization like yours to have that added circle of folks who are interested, but aren't just for whatever reason, just aren't, uh, um, you know, interested in having a regular membership? Yeah, I think so. I think people, especially with social media today, you know, it's something that maybe you want to see pop up in your feed or you want to get an email, but you've got other commitments where you're, you know, spending your money elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And then how many, roughly how many towns are reflective of your, of your membership? I would say the majority of our membership is in Massachusetts, right along through the, the corridor of the river, probably two thirds of it. And a third of it is in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then John, tell us, um, I know that not too long ago, there was a great deal of time and effort that had been put into preparing, drafting and finalizing a, uh, a conservation plan for the Merrimack River. Is that still in place? Is it regularly modified? And, and what does that kind of, you know, big picture, what does that consist of? I think at that time, that was a good document. And we've been looking at it and thinking it's got to change because, you know, since then, we're starting to really see the impacts of climate change. And we're starting to learn more about these, what they call next generation pollutants that are coming into the river. It's something that wasn't known about at that time. Uh, you know, these are things we need to react to and come up with new plans. So that's what we've been working on. John, I was fascinated in reading just an outline of that plan, and it touched on three different areas. I, was, I just would invite you to comment as best you can. Number one was habitat, habitat elements, a bit of what you've talked about with the buffer zones, water resources, and then recreation and trails. So 
with where the council is now and the work you're doing, how does that focus on habitat, water resources, and then recreational opportunities, trails, and that kind of thing? One of the things we're working on with habitat is fish habitat in the Merrimack and trying to restore areas where fish can come into and breed. And we've got this resurgence of fish coming into the Merrimack. It's really fascinating. A good news story that we see these these spring runs, like there used to be historically of uh, alewives and uh, herring that are coming up the river and they hit dams and they can't get beyond them. Or there's areas where they might have had habitat in historic past and those areas are not conducive anymore. So part of our work is that of helping to restore the ability of fish to get to their their breeding grounds, which is going to increase the number of fish. And these fish are so important to the bigger food chain that's happening in our oceans. Now, these are the fish that, unfortunately for them, they get out into the ocean and they become the feed of other fish, including whales and uh, much larger species that we're familiar with. But the river is a huge piece of that puzzle. So that's one thing. Uh, Water management that's, that's a complicated one. You know, one of the things to keep in mind is that 600,000 people get their drinking water from the Merrimack, it's, which wow. is an astounding number. You know, it's, it's the largest, second largest source of surface drinking water in uh, New England, but the EPA considers it to be one of the most polluted sources as well. So, you know, that number, the number of people drinking out is going to increase as the years go on. So, it's vitally important that we, we try to make it as clean as possible for those uh, water sources. And so recreation, uh, yeah, that's an important piece of, our, of what we try to do. You know, we try to get people out on the river because it's so different when you're on it than when you're walking along it. So we've started to do more um, kayak trips. You know, uh, we've, been, uh, we've had this idea for a while now. We were really kind of kind of been close to it before the pandemic of having a uh, a trip that goes the entire length of the bareback that people could go on and that would be quite a cruise you imagine that that's a long and it's a tricky river in a lot of areas a lot of falls and and uh, you know, rapids and, and then long stretches where you're just paddling forever and ever uh, 120 miles roughly wow but you're always flowing with the current right you are. Yes, you are. Yep. So that's a good thing. Yeah, you don't want to go the other way. Yeah, that might, get... be, that might be for hardier types like yourself. <laughs> well, I don't know. I've never done it. I don't know how well I do. But uh, yeah, it's tricky when you get down near the mouth because, uh, of course, you get the tide, too. So you have to time it to that. Uh, we did it a few years ago. We had a, a small group of people do it. Boy, they were coming across a very final stretch of it across the big, wide area Newburyport and a storm came up and they were racing against it. They could see it. And then we lost sight of them because the waves were so big. We thought, oh my God, did we just lose our entire party of people? Uh, and then they emerged and, and they all made it safe. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a challenge. <laughs> we think people would be interested in it. Exactly. In talking about the dams, I assume in Lawrence, there's a dam known as the Great stone dam. It really is an engineering marvel that was put into place when the city of Lawrence was kind of being built and is in its initial phases as a planned city. How well does that herring ladder work at the Great Stone Dam in Lawrence? 
Yeah, that one works pretty well. So it's actually an elevator that fish get in and they really? go up just like we would in an elevator. Yeah. I had no idea. It's really neat. You know, they have a huge glass window so you can see them come in and uh, then up like an elevator and then they get discharged up the river and they keep swimming. It's a lot easier than swimming up ladders. So there are five major dams on the Merrimack. So that's the first of them. Then they've got Lowell and then they've got Manchester and they can get up those next two through fish ladders. You know, you've probably seen those. Yep. And beyond that, that's where work needs to be done to restore new ladders up there. You know, another piece of this dam issue is that the exact number I'm not clear on, somewhere in the area of around a thousand dams or so within the, the entire watershed, a lot of those dams are no longer used. Mm-hmm. And so there are efforts now to start tearing some of them down. So there's one in particularly, there's one in uh, Haverhill and there's one in uh, Bill Ricca that mm-hmm. uh, are currently under uh, proposed uh, destruction. John, you've mentioned sea rise, climate change. A term that I'm hearing more of is resiliency, climate resiliency. Do you see that to be a more uh, a term that encompasses more of the kind of work that you're, you're involved with? Yeah, it does. You know, our organization works with communities throughout the Merrimack Valley who are working on their uh, municipal vulnerability planning. So what they do is I, they identify areas, usually it's like sewage plants or, or any sort of infrastructure that could be impacted by flooding. And how are they going to deal with that? So we try to help them to, to come up with plans for how they're going to do it. Um, you know, another area that's of concern is, uh, this is particularly true in, in New Hampshire, where, um, you know, we have, we have these extremes in our climate now where it get really dry. You know, we've had some long droughts and suddenly we get these really intense storms. So windy, yeah, a lot of water. And that's, that's the worst thing that can happen to trees. For example, at some of the dams along the river, they've been noticing a significant increase in the number of dead trees that are coming down the river. And this is because of climate change. You know, trees are our best buffer to hold, the, uh, hold back erosion and to hold back uh, contaminants from getting into the river. So one of the things we're trying to do now is replant trees, native trees, uh, along the river in areas that, where they're needed. So this summer, we're going to start doing that again. So if there are people who are interested in doing something, you know, that really has a, you know, a true uh, help for our environment, you know, we're always looking for volunteers. So it might be something your listeners are interested in. Yeah. Let's turn to the crows. All John, right. For you, uh, so I went back through the archives on the blog, Winter Crow Roost, uh, dot com, the blog that has now some excellent kind of archival history over this is the fifth winter. And it's always neat to scroll back through prior events, uh, uh, you know, trends and patterns of the crows on a given winter. This being the fifth winter, each winter, John, the crows have, they land at the New Balance building on South Union Street. And then each winter, it's a, when the winter is done, it's a different zigzag pattern. And uh, what, I, what I trace back is our first outing with the council was with uh, Rusty Russell back in uh, 2019. And I don't know, were you with us on that outing? I can't remember. 
Yeah, I think I was. So we went down behind uh, Chippendale Studio. Is that uh, where no, we no, went? No, no, no. This is this is. Uh, we went up to the uh, boathouse, the Bashara boathouse, uh, west of the Great Stone Dam. They were up in that area. We saw crows. We saw juvenile bald eagles. All of that. So that was kind of how we got going. But what's your first recall of of kind of seeing or experiencing or or coming to understand about this crow phenomenon? I used to work at the Eagle Tribune years ago. And when I would leave work in the early evening, sometimes I'd see these crows, hundreds of them flying over 495 every night. What is going on here? I, I didn't know, you know, this went on for years. And then you stepped into the scene <laughs> and explained it. And that was, that was so great. You know, I had no idea. I bet you there are tons of people who had no idea until you started to piece this together for people to explain where they were going and what they were doing and all these pieces of this phenomenon, which is, is so cool. I didn't know about it until I came to the council and uh, I learned about the programs that you do. And I will say that your program is the most popular program that we present to people. So kudos to you for that. Well, it's <laughs> been a wonderful partnership One of the great blessings, John, is the ability to reach out, as you can appreciate, to different types of conservation and environmental groups. And certainly we have no lack of those in the the Merrimack Valley. When it comes to the river, uh, the council is certainly the the dominant organization. But there are are bird clubs. There are local town-based conservation groups. Uh, There's Groundwork Lawrence that the council does a lot of partnership work with, and rightly so, in the city of Lawrence. It's a great partnership. And what we found was there was interest in doing art exhibits. There was interest in doing education programs for school children. We've been working with a special needs high school program, special needs students in high school, post high school. Uh, I just had an email the other day from a woman who's going to have a group of grade school students during vacation week. And the kids are going to be in the school doing some kind of a, a special program. And she said, can you come in and talk to 35 of these kids about, about the crows? We're going to do, we'll do a little bit of a, of a prepared program and then we'll turn it over to you. And so there's been this wonderful opportunity to integrate in working with the council and other groups to be able to integrate what's going on, to educate, to inform, which is a big part of what you spend your time doing about this amazing avian phenomenon right inside the city limits. Mm, And in your case, right alongside the Merrimack River. Right. That's something that you would normally think about. So if you put on your naturalist hat, your ecologist hat, your natural history hat, what's your sense of what's going on when you see these crows coming in, squawking, vocalizing, landing in the tree? What do you think is going on? (laughs) Well, I think the first time I thought it was, you know, it was the birds, the movie, the birds. I'd never seen anything like it because they sometimes come into our parking lot. If people haven't seen it, they've really got to check this out because it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Thousands of very large birds, loud, you know, right there, right around. I mean, it, it is just kind of a mind-blowing thing to see. I've never seen anything like it around here, you know, it's, it's or anywhere, really. So <laughs> I'm so thankful that you have connected all the dots on this so that 
people now understand what it's about, where they go, you know, what they're doing. I imagine there are thousands of people who go up and down 495 and some of the other highways in our area, and they see them, you know, at night, they see them in these pretty big flocks going over their heads and wondering, you know, what is going on? I was reading a recent article about a business leader in Lawrence, and as part of the article, it touched a bit on her past involvement with political campaigns. And I think it talked about a month-long billboard rental right along 495, maybe in Lawrence. And, and I was struck when it even went, so it was even as detailed to mention what the expense was. And it wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't think it was that expensive. So now I'm, I'm thinking maybe next winter we can work together and, and do a month-long billboard rental promoting a couple of Crow Patrol outings uh, yeah. and, see, and see, what kind of, see what kind of attention. And then people say, oh, that is, that's what it's. <laughs> yeah, it probably triple our audience, right? Exactly. John, when you and I worked on that first outing along, just on the east side, along the river, just on the east side of the route 495 Bridge, Sutton Street, looking over uh, at the roost in Lawrence. When you were making the initial plans, what were you thinking about? Were you kind of thinking like, is anybody going to come to this? Or are we going to get five people? I mean, what, was, what was, before we had the turnout and, and the energy, what was your thought on that? Okay, so uh, I recall that, um, <laughs> for starters, that you had mentioned that, well, they don't always show up exactly where I think they might. So I thought, uh-oh, oh, I hope they show up. <laughs> what if they don't? <laughs> and we're standing there. And thankfully they did. And it, we had a good turnout. I want to say we had 40 or something people there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was a cold, cold day. You know, it's a kind of thing that you don't expect people are going to show up that because of the weather and the time of year and the time of night. So the turnout was terrific. And the Crows performed you know, admirably, they was like, they knew, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) If you (laughs) sent an email to them or something, they, they were there and uh, you know, the, the the sun was setting and there was just this really neat visual of, of them flying up over the river. So it was, it was magical. I thought it was just terrific. What do you recall were some of the reactions from attendees when they, either during or as they were departing. Do you recall, you know, what, what's your recall on some of the reactions that were shared with you? And maybe they were by phone or email a day or two after. Just universally, people fascinated and really thankful to have that opportunity and to learn what it was all about. You know, I think people, maybe they, they feel disconnected from their environment, especially when we're in these urban areas, and to see something that is completely natural and and yeah and vast and unconnected to their daily lives that's happening right there is is really a magical thing yeah jaw dropper absolutely so we got great turn up it never fails that that jaw dropping element it's it's a it's a guarantee with you and with others we just need to get them out there and then and then the crows do prompt the jaw dropping reaction and uh, it makes it so enjoyable john as we wrap up uh, just just 
Your thoughts or reflections working with your fellow staffer, Julia, this year, I think a somewhat newer member of the team overall. She did a great job. But the, the, the plan was, and I'm sure you had a big hand in this, was to do a webinar a week in advance and then a smaller, a limited number of people due to COVID issues uh, a week later a field trip, again, somewhat limited just because of the COVID considerations. You knew it was going to work. You didn't know the magnitude, but but just your thoughts and reflections on on the turnout, the interest, and, and anything else that might have come up. Sure. Yeah. The turnout was terrific for the uh, webinar. I think we had a, well over 100 people who showed up for that. And that's great. You know, that's, that's one of the biggest ones we've ever had. And then we had, uh, I forget how many people signed up who wanted to go in person and we could only accept a small number. And that's, you know, unfortunately that where we're at these days, but I think you probably could have done five of them and there would still be more people, you know, waiting to come. It was just so much interest in it. So when we finally emerged from COVID and were able to support all those numbers, you were going to have to get you a loudspeaker because you're going to have a big crowd. Two years ago, we did a welcome back for the Crows at the Spicket River Brewery, which you would know exactly where that is because it's right next to where your office is located. So we might have to do a creative welcome back party hosted by the council at the brewery with some other affiliated (laughs) partnership groups as a way to kind of kick off the start of the season. And then if we put the billboard up, we can list the other events and we might be amazed at the turnout. Oh, that sounds great. And I'll bet you we could get them to uh, create a a Crow Show brew too. They're they're pretty flexible on that. They they do have a Crow branded. uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's all great. John, our time is up. Any final thoughts to share about the crows, the crow roost, the river, anything you want to share as a final thought from what we've covered? Oh, I want want to thank you for your dedication to what you do with with this. It it just hits such a nerve with people. And we're really appreciative to be involved with you in this. So thank you. And people want to check out the things that we do, uh, check out our website. It's Merrimack.org. And you'll get an overview of what our organization is about. And then, John, following the council on Instagram. Yeah, you can follow us on Instagram. You can uh, follow us on Uh, We have a lot of posts on Facebook as well. So you'll find us on Facebook too. Good, good, good. Well, uh, John, thank you again for joining us. It's wonderful to be together with you. And of course, you know that uh, we're big fans of the Watershed Council, the great work that you do uh, closely combined in the winter months with the the crows coming to visit as as winter visitors. And uh, we look forward to getting out together with you and other members of your team, members and others who have an interest. So thank you so much. We look forward to more work together. God bless you. Stay safe and be well. Thanks again, John. Thank you, Craig. That's all for this episode of The Crow Patrol. Subscribe to The Crow Patrol in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your own favorite podcast app so you don't miss our next episode. You can find recent postings, photos, and videos of winter crow roosts, read the latest articles and research, and contact us at wintercrowroost.com. I'm Craig Gibson. Thanks for listening.